Welcome to episode 65 of The Professor and the Hack. Uh, I'm the, I was going to say I'm the professor. I'm certainly not that. I'm the hack. Hugh Rimmington, the professor, PVO, Peter Van Otselen. Uh Morning. G'day, mate. We're episode 65. That seems to be uh, what well, used to be the retirement age. It seems to march on and on and on. And um, it seems as though there's some marching going on in the government with uh, thoughts about superannuation. Yeah, look, that, that's absolutely true, isn't it? The government are, are looking to make some adjustments there. Uh, I, I would call that taking advantage of the times, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, I'm not saying I agree with what they're looking to do, uh, but that is seemingly what the thinking is. You know, in, in times of crisis, policy scripts that might be ideologically decided as being good by one side of politics or the other sometimes aren't achievable outside of the crisis but in the time of crisis of course everybody uh, is suddenly willing to try new things and 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 that is the time to strike which i think is where that saying comes from it looks like that's what the coalition's potentially going to do on super so the thing that they're trying to do uh we you know this is legislated already the government has said mm. repeatedly this is not just an election promise that they wouldn't which makes it hard to undo doesn't it hugh makes it hard for them to undo it that being the case exactly yeah, so, so, you know, we're living in a time when wages are, are just really low. If you've got a job, it's not a good time to go in there and demand a pay rise. Uh, your long time, pro- people have been, you know, going and mining their superannuation balances as they've been allowed to do under the terms of the coronavirus response. Are we seeing the unravelling of superannuation? Is this a bit by bit, bite by bite? Um, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but certainly there's no huge support uh, rhetorically coming from the government mm. for the increase to the 12% that's been legislated, which tends to suggest that they'd be quite keen if they could back out of it. Well, the coalition's had an issue with super for a long time. I mean, of course, as you well know, Hugh, it was the Keating government that introduced it, and really it was uh, the Labor Party that saw it go through incremental increases, and then that was slowed by the coalition government and then sped up again by Labor, but just not taken on by the most recent coalition government because they just decided that there wasn't the political will for it. So they've never really had a love of super. I hope this isn't the death of it, but I do fear that this is an assault on it. Some of the assault on it is understandable in the current low wages climate, that it's, a, it's an impost both on people's capacity to get money in their pockets now when they need it for super to be going up when wages aren't. And also obviously the impost on, on businesses that are struggling as well uh, through this pandemic and in the aftermath of it with the recession we're in now. So I can see those arguments, but having said all of that, you know, with the quantum of debt that's being built and the reality that people are getting less super anyway because of more time unemployed or underemployed, my fear is that you're really kicking the fiscal can down the road if you eat into super as well because people are already going to have less money from lower employment levels. The government is already going to have more of a burden paying back debt in the decades to come right at a time where you might have a new generation retiring with less super than they would have ideally had had we not tinkered with super. I've always liked it uh, as something to have, even though I can understand frustrations around people trying to buy new homes or, or whatever it might be, particularly first homes. But, you know, it, it's forced savings. Uh, what I would like to see, I've written about this before, is some reform of how those forced savings are put in place. That is to say, generic funds remove some of the um, you know, cronyism that exists around some of these super funds and have a generic one that is, you know, if you like, low fee and therefore an opt-out one that everybody can go into generically and and decisions can be made after that but that's a reform of super when you like super 
as opposed to an eroding of it because you see it as something that, that should be taken away. I just hope that doesn't happen. What, what, what do you think? Well, I think that kicking the can down the road thing is an argument. I definitely think it's, look, there's, we're heading into a deep and long recession. There's not a lot of money going around. Employment is hard. Employers have got a hard time. There's, there's a whole bunch of things that are going on. But the whole business was structured. You talk about government debt that, that the government is accruing. Mm. Um, are they going to be in a better position to pay pensions you know, in the future uh, with those levels of debt? What are going to be the arguments around that? when the whole idea of super was to step it up to the point in which pensions as a proportion of the Commonwealth budget would start to diminish down and down and down and down because they wouldn't need to be paid as much. And I'm attracted to that as an idea. Um, whether there's a delay or not in that, I don't know. It's got to go through, because it is legislated, it's got to go through the Senate. So, you know, it'll have a hard time getting through the Senate if they do try to change it. But I do, I do think that superannuation was a great plan and uh, eases future budgets, um, which will be under more strain. So, um, yeah. anyway, it'll be a bit of fight. I think one of the problems with super is, is the way that it was designed at the get-go. It was a great idea, and Keating deserves pats on the back for that. But you can't unscramble the egg of it now. But if you had your time again, and hindsight's always an easy thing, isn't it? If you had your time again, I think there would be less taxes, potentially no taxes, with what goes into super, but it would get taxed on the way out. Uh, whereas that does not really happen at the moment. I know they tried to make some adjustments there, but the tax on the way out is so minuscule. And that's one of the issues that younger generations of working age have with people in retirement benefiting from super, particularly people in amongst those baby boomers who were in a window there where they were able in the Costello treasury ship years to put infinite amounts of money into super and now live off it with minimal tax. But I think the idea that you get taxed on your super once you access it so you are contributing the same way that someone generating an income is contributing is a better way to go but you want to maximize people's capacity when that happens to have more money rather than less so you want to have even more incentives than there currently are in the system to be able to shovel money into your super so that you have more in retirement but then you just can't double double up that tax advantage by paying less tax in retirement you know, you, you become the equivalent of somebody who can ideally, if you're lucky, can earn whatever your wage was in working life through your retirement years. And then the taxpayer benefits too in the long run, because you're paying tax the same as you did as a, as a working Australian. Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, if you fiddle around with, uh, as, as Bill Shorten found out, if you fiddle around with uh, people's expectations of what their incomes will be, even if it's just a suggestion of it, even if it's not actually something that applies to you, in yeah, fact, get that government interferes with the retirement incomes, it can be a hard sell if someone wants to go in against you. Now, look, we've, we've hit some bleak and more bleak um, milestones. We've had the highest single-day global infection increase um, that we've seen so far. Uh, domestically in Australia, if people listening to this, almost certainly by the time you come around to listen to this, will be over 400 deaths across Australia. Um, a few sort of better signs about getting on top of the aged care outbreaks um, in, uh, in Victoria. But one of the things that will emerge from this, you talk about no crisis should ever be let pass without getting some advantage from it. Surely, uh, somewhere in this is going to have to be a fundamental from the ground up rethink about aged care. Oh, God, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? I mean, there was already the Aged Care Royal Commission that this government brought into place 
underway and that was a good thing and, and it was going to traverse what we already knew was a sector in distress uh, with significant reforms necessary. But COVID-19 striking has just highlighted other elements of that. And that, that was an unexpected or unintended consequence of calling the Royal Commission from Scott Morrison's perspective, because he didn't see that coming, did he? That they would be coming out and the special counsel assisting uh, would be saying that there was hubris in their response overall to the health issue and therefore they let down in the aged care space. The commissioner, one of the Royal Commissioners himself, he has actually said uh, that there was no plan in place, no national plan. The government, of course, is trying to refute this, but they're refuting something different to what the Royal Commissioner actually said and deliberately so, quite frankly. But there's so many ironies to the setup of it before you even get to the hope of what they're going to achieve out the other end of it. You know, Scott Morrison has a Royal Commission about something that ends up now unpicking potentially his competency around the handling of aged care during the COVID-19 crisis. What my worry, Hugh, is this. My worry is that if the government is trying to avoid the kind of blame for problems in the aged care sector which have been exposed by this virus, if they're trying to avoid that blame politically, it's going to make it less likely that they will wholesomely embrace reforms which are predicated on those failures needing to be fixed, if I could put it that way. So if, you, if, you, if you're denying the premise, that is that they stuffed up the aged care handling of COVID-19, then you're less likely to go with what the supposed antidote is, according to the Royal Commission. And that's my worry, that therefore we don't see the kind of level of mea culpa and reform to follow that we otherwise might if the political class weren't too busy protecting their own backsides for fear of a political backlash. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not just did they or didn't they have a, a sector-specific plan for aged care as COVID struck, but it goes down to, uh, you know, I, I reject the premise of your question, that favourite line at news mm. conferences, that it doesn't just relate to the COVID plan, uh, it was there or wasn't there, and should that be the Commonwealth's responsibility, but actually down to the reshaping of aged care years before under Howard. Um, when the argument goes, it was uh, quite deliberately shifted uh, towards the private sector and mm. private operators were encouraged into the sector. And of course, private operators, like any other area of health or, or, or what previously had been perceived largely as being a welfare area, have a duty to shareholders and investors or whoever's behind those companies to return, uh, you know, deliver a return on that investment. So the profit motive factors, and that's tearing in one direction, whereas of course people want their, their elders, their elders, uh, to be dealt with on a care um, uh, basis, not a profit basis for the operators. Um, could we see out of this pressure, I think we saw a bit of Bill Shorten at the weekend on ABC mm. Insiders, could we see coming out of this pressure for a, a, a really profound, deep new think about how aged care should be structured in the country? Oh, look, I certainly think we should, uh, and absolutely, therefore, we could, whether we will, that's you know, going back to my, my concern about how willing the government might be to embrace failures, which, as you point out, their side of politics essentially brought in, if those indeed were the failures, and remove that market mechanism. Sure, but is it a matter for the, this government? Does it not become a, a, an election issue at which one side, presumably Labor, comes up and says, you have failed us on these levels. You, we are going to offer up a different system and we'll put it to the voters to decide. Uh, and at the moment, given some of the stuff that's going to come out of the Royal Commission uh, and just the sheer horrors of the scenes that we've seen coming out of the aged care as COVID goes in, 
it's given us an insight, uh, an unwelcome insight into uh, the indignities that can come with great age or yeah. infirmity, dementia, and so on. And that that, in fact, may become a matter that voters decide. Well, you know what the first thing... The first thing that has to happen, Hugh, and, and we saw this, uh, we saw this, I think this is a profound, if I say so myself, I think this is a profoundly important point. The point at which Indigenous affairs accelerated up the list of issues of prominence that received attention, there's still a lot to be done in that space, obviously, but when it was elevated to a cabinet position, that was the marker in time where governments were signalling to the sector that they were taking Indigenous affairs seriously and popping it into Cabinet. It had been reduced over the previous years, as we saw the difference between Cabinet and outer ministry to, to a junior portfolio. It was elevated. And then the hope was, I can hear someone either stealing a car behind me here in the neighbourhood or... Uh, or simply their alarm has gone off you. Let's hope it's the latter. Uh, by the way, just as an aside, I'm in the middle of what's supposed to be a profound point, but does anyone ever rush to a car when an alarm goes off in fear that it might be getting stolen? Or do we all sit around and wait for the bloody owner to turn off their alarm that we assume that they've accidentally triggered? Anyway, that's, that's it's, it's, and Hang on, Pivia. It's like aged care. The alarms can go and go and go, and <laughs> nice, no one does anything about uh, it until finally it becomes... Nicely until, done. until the car's been taken away. Nicely done. Well, the alarm's gone off. So either the owner has fixed it or the car is being driven off by someone wearing a balaclava. But anyway, we'll put that to one side. My, my point, which I think I know, you know where I'm going here, Indigenous Affairs, when it went into Cabinet, it was a marker that they were you know, putting more of a focus on it. It was getting politically focused public policy priority of government by putting a more senior minister in it. That has to happen in aged care. Whether Anthony Albanese does this from opposition by saying we are elevating aged care as a, as a standalone portfolio into shadow cabinet and then the government follows or indeed his government follows if he becomes government or if Scott Morrison does it, I think that would be both politically clever to do but also the right response as the message that it sends because you've got this Colbeck bloke in aged care at the moment. Now, he seems like a decent enough fellow but I'm not sure he's what you'd call you know, the, the, the sharpest tool in the shed in the government. Let's be frank about this. Well, he lost uh, his seat. He was, he was shuffled down the list, wasn't he, in Tasmania? And he lost well, his position. Exactly. And, then, and, then he, and then they sort of brought him back in again. He was out of the election. Yeah, and, and he's not a senior player. He never has been, you know. I mean, we're going to have to take a break in a moment, I realise. But he's, he's not a senior player. He never has been. Now, technically, Greg Hunt has oversight of aged care because he's the health minister and, and aged care is a, a subset of his portfolio. So Colbeck is his junior minister. But it would make sense to have a standalone aged care department, a standalone aged care minister in cabinet, because let's face it, we all want to grow old. Uh, the alternative is not particularly enticing. And we are an ageing population and we have a demographic hitting retirement age now, the baby boomers, which is the largest demographic cohort uh, and we have all these problems in the aged care sector specifically when it comes to institutional care so that portfolio you hear, heard it here first on the professor and the hack should 100 percent be a cabinet standalone portfolio with its own department too not just a subset of health we'll take a quick break i want to actually pick up on this on the other side and also talk about other things pvo don't go away don't be taken away by uh, by the uh, the man we presume <laughs> it's a man in the balaclava talk to you in a moment
So you've just watched Bachelor in Paradise and you're ready to watch Lockie find love on The Bachelor, but that's not enough, is it? No, you need me, Osha, and you need you, Alicia, right? Oh, that's what they need, Osha. We are here to discuss the new season of The Bachelor with our gorgeous Bachelor, Lockie. Isn't he lovely? We're watching every episode together. We're talking through each episode together and we're offering insights that no one can really give. I'm fascinated to find out what it's like to actually be in the mansion from you. I am fascinated to know what it is like being the host of The Bachelor. I've already given away a little too much about how we actually make the show, but you can hear all that on The Reality Bite, which is uh, our brand new podcast where we talk you through each episode of The Bachelor each week. The Reality Bite, Cocktails and Roses, get it where you get your podcasts. Welcome back to uh, episode 65 of The Professor and the Hack and PVO was in uh, mid-flow there. Uh, and and I, I, I agree with you, actually, PVO. This is the question of uh, the level of uh, seniority that is applied to the portfolio of aged care within governments traditionally. And I've noticed this for a long time, and it's concerned me for a long time, that all sides of parliament, the leader, they have different traditions of the way in which they do this on the coalition side and on the, on the Labour side, but fundamentally that the concept is the same. Uh, a list of names goes up to the leader um, and then portfolios are assigned and you put your stars relative to how they match up against mm. key portfolios and so on. And at the end, you're always left with, um, you know, this, essentially the, you know, the duds who often for some factional reason or for some other reason have to be included in the broad numbers uh, that have been put forward for the front bench. <laughs> the and duds. Then, and, yeah, and, <laughs> and, you know, at aged care has been, and this is an appalling thing to say, but aged care, and I mean no, no particular insult towards Richard Colbert, who currently holds it, or those beforehand, but there hasn't gone to the stars, and it hasn't gone to the people who've got um, the sort of leverage and capacity for persuasion within that ministerial group. And it has, it, we only ever hear from it, go back to Kerosene Barnes, uh, Baths and uh, Bronwyn Bishop when she held the portfolio, we only hear about it when it, when it gets completely wrong. And that's where we are now. So you're arguing that it it, it's always one of the, to... yeah, absolutely. It's always one of the most junior portfolios. When you get the ministerial list, it's not only out of ministry and, and outside of cabinet, but it sits at the kind of bottom of the rung amongst all of those also ran portfolios. And as you say, it's, it's, it's always, I'm not being disrespectful to the individuals. Sometimes it's people who are on the up or on the down in their career or just lucky to jag a spot on the front bench based on factional or state-based shenanigans. But at the end of the day, as you say, it is not a star that gets that portfolio. You know, you don't see one of the big guns in government lining up hoping to get aged care, but you damn well should. This is a portfolio that we've long known this, by the way, it's only just now with the Royal Commission coupled with COVID that we're able to actually put it front and centre. It's, it's one of the most important bloody portfolios going around. My, my mother ran an aged care home when I was a kid. Uh, it was closed down uh, spectacularly so because it was a wonderful aged care public facility in Vaucluse on 14 acres of waterfront property with a vista of the harbour. Public land, Hugh and a public nursing home. And it had two parts, more acute care and less acute care. It was shut down for various reasons. Basically, the government wanted to sell off the land that it was on uh, rather than have to continue to have it there, heaven forbid, for public nursing home patients. But God, it was a good facility. It had the capacity that other ones don't to be able to self-raise money because of its location and holding art exhibitions and all sorts of things. But the patients got such an amazing end-of-life experience being there. And my mother ran it 
the way that she did. And it was almost an enterprise back then. You wouldn't be able to do that with the bureaucracies these days. But I saw these patients get genuine joy and they, 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 they had dementia. They had all sorts of various ailments. But, you know, this was a way to live, not a way to get cooped up in some crappy little designated system, which is either private and designed to make a profit or public and run down and almost run to the standard of a prison. Uh, we, that's what should be happening writ large. And we should all give a damn about it because we're all potentially going to be in that situation. We certainly hope to be old enough to be in that situation. Um, and we might be unfortunate enough, and it shouldn't be unfortunate, should it? Um, but we might be unfortunate enough to be in the system that is now rather than fortunate enough to be in a home like that one. And one of the factors that goes then is that nowadays the people working in aged care, uh, as, uh, as Bill Shorten pungently put it at, uh, at the weekend, he says, we expect them to do the work of angels, but we treat them like fruit pickers, uh, essentially as a casualised uh, workforce uh, with no uh, job security and very low levels of pay, often mm. positions that are filled by migrant workers. We've talked about before my older brother, uh, left um, sort of middle management and decided that he wanted to do something useful for the last years of his working life, retrained in his working in aged care and working nine days a fortnight, every shift around the clock uh, in, in a full year, earned $39,000 before tax. Um, yeah. You know, it, it is not a job that, that it has no security for those in there. Therefore, you know, people can do, do their own thinking about... Uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the people who go there to work there. My brother, for one, absolutely uh, does it for for reasons. He's in a position where he doesn't need the money as a, as a function of what he's doing. He's making choices about how he wants to spend the last bits of his working life. He's already in his early 60s. And, um, and you know, he's got nothing but respect for the people that he's working with. But it does go down to that question that you talk about, seeing people who are having a good end-of-life experience can that happen with people who are working multiple shifts across many different places with no security, often exhausted, because there's no money in it? Um, it's very, so, it's, so, it's hard. It's almost impossible. Because this is going to become, ultimately it comes a choice about the choices we make as a nation and as a society. Uh, we can have better aged care. Are we willing to pay for it? Are we willing to make that part of the costs of being part of society? Um, rather like having a health system and all that kind of stuff, You're having an education system, a public education system, even if you don't have kids, you contribute to it because it's part of the common good. Is it going to be one of these things that the argument can be made that we need to put more money into it to essentially give stability to the workforce in there and we hope better care for the people who will be us uh, who are already there in the system. Yeah, well, and I mean, look, I mean, I was just a kid, but I look at the example of the, the home that my mother ran. And I mean, it was a unique one because this property, Strickland House, as it was set and where it was, was a unique setting uh, for an aged care home. But maybe that was part of why it had the level of staff retention that it did. But they had nurses, assistant nurses, duty officers, and most of whom were full-time at that point in time. Uh, and long-time staff members of this facility because it was the kind of place they wanted to work as hard as the work was for them. 
um, because of the reward of it, because you, it was, it was a triple effect, wasn't it? I mean, they were happy to go into work because of the setting with, in which they were working. The patients, uh, were, you know, more enjoying their end of life experience. And then that flows back to the workforce enjoyment as well, coupled with a sense of achievement in your job. And I, I don't know, like aged care homes these days, uh, I haven't been into a lot of them to be perfectly frank, but from everything I've read and seen and had firsthand accounts from people and your brother would obviously be much better placed than either of us to talk about this, certainly than me, but it just looks like it has just become a very difficult environment both to work in and certainly uh, to be thrust in. Uh, and it's when at a time, as I said before, when we're an aging population, uh, when a greater percentage of the population are going to end up in that exact situation. So um, we will fix aged care completely on another P on another podcast, PVO. <laughs> We've got Parliament coming up. It's not too far away. Um, a big shout out you to all to all of our self isolating Victorian MPs. I think twelve of them did it, uh, who have either made the trip to Canberra or are currently uh, holding their families hostage in Victoria. Because if you chose to stay in Victoria, your whole household had to self-isolate. A big shout out to any of them if they're listening uh, while they're enjoying some Uber Eats. Yeah, absolutely. And a uh, shout out to you for, for uh, putting on the pressure, being one of those who put on the pressure for Parliament to come back as it, as it did, when I'm sure the government wanted it to go a little longer when they ruled by caveat. Um, but uh, what do you think this, this parliamentary session will look like? You know, every relationship starts in hope. It often ends in blame. Uh, there's been a fair degree of uh, bipartisanship and, um, you know, certainly politeness, mm. a slight laying down of weapons during this period. Do you, do you think oh, I think that that's over. Persist? No, I, oh, I think that's over. I mean, the forum will make it more difficult for Parliament to fire up the way it often does when it becomes highly adversarial because there will be fewer people there. There may even be virtual elements to it we're hearing about and we'll see how that does play out in the, in the sitting fortnight ahead. Uh, it starts next week. But I think notwithstanding those institutional limits... I think the gloves are well and truly off now. I think it will be fiery. I think the opposition will be aggressive. And I think that they will target aged care, certainly. Um, but they'll go wider than that because there are some other issues, certainly in the mix as well, Ruby Princess amongst them. Um, but, yeah, I don't think that we're going to see that sort of... And we'd already started to see the end of it, I think, in fairness. But we're certainly not going to see what was there at the beginning of this pandemic where there was that real sense of we're all in this together, we're not going to question government. And it's easier for federal Labor, by the way, to take this view about the federal government because the federal government are questioning the Victorian state government so substantially in a lot of their commentary and criticisms. It's hardly then possible for them to turn around and condemn federal Labor for doing the same to the federal government uh, and questioning the way that they're operating. I don't have a problem with either, by the way. Uh, I, I think governments, whether it's in the midst of a pandemic or, or in the midst of any crisis, I, th I think the questioning is healthy. That's the whole bloody point of adversarial parliamentary democracy. Have the parliament sit, ask the questions. It can get a little fiery and then it's for the public to decide how comfortable or otherwise they are with the responses. So you mentioned the Ruby Princess and the uh, the Royal Commission, uh, the Brett Walker Commission. Uh, sorry, it was a, it was a it was a special inquiry in New South Wales mm. into the uh, fiasco that was the Ruby Princess. But it actually gave the key uh, Commonwealth Department Border uh, Pr Protection Home Affairs. Mm. Um, it gave them a, a, a pretty clear sheet. It said said they don't have the epidemiological or, or medical expertise to be involved in making decisions 
in a case like uh, the Ruby Princess, so it's best they have nothing to do with it. So people who have argued vociferously that this was uh, either basically all border force uh, for letting them in because they're supposed to protect the border, or alternatively some sort of mix of the blame between New South Wales Health and Border Force. In fact, Brett Walker SC has come down and said, no, it's not Border Force, it's really down to New South Wales Health and uh, the operators of the Carnival, the operators of the Ruby, Ruby Princess. Does that give a, a clear pass then when it comes to the Ruby Princess for Peter Dutton? Oh, look, to some extent it does, but I, I think that the answer is more complicated than that. I mean, certainly Brett Walker has laid the blame at the feet of New South Wales Health, uh, and not not incorrectly so based on everything that I've seen uh, around his findings on that. And, and as you rightly point out, as he pointed out, uh, they had the medical expertise and they dropped the ball badly on that one. Having said that, though, having said that, the political point, which is why I'm not sure that the federal government can completely therefore wash, it, wash, its, wash its hands of that failure by New South Wales Health, the political point is this. Days before the Ruby Princess's arrival, Scott Morrison did have a press conference. He did say that he would put in place a bespoke scheme overseen by Border Force to deal with cruise ship arrivals. Now, the fact that New South Wales Health then let the federal government down and let Border Force down uh, along the way, and substantially so, doesn't absolve the PM or Border Force of that, or therefore Dutton, of that reality that they had not just a role in this, but they also had come out and tried to, if you like, almost score political points for looking tough and powerful by saying they were going to put in place a bespoke scheme, which ultimately we know wrongly relied on New South Wales Health to do a job that it didn't do. So they're to blame for that. But it's a little bit like the coach still gets the blame when he sets up the structure if the star players, including the captain, let him down on the field. Uh, they're primary, primarily to blame. They got it wrong in the game. They didn't follow the, the, the playbook correctly. But the coach still ultimately has a level of culpability in all of this, I would argue, particularly when they put themselves as front and centre as that media conference did. There's another issue there too for the Commonwealth, and that was um, the Scott Morrison promised the full support of the Commonwealth to the uh, inquiry into the Ruby Princess when Brett Walker set out to uh, try to get uh, witnesses, gave a list of witnesses to the Commonwealth that he wanted to speak with. Uh, not only did they say no, they threatened to take him to the High Court to, uh, to assert their right to say no, uh, which mm. got a bit of a backhander for Brett Walker in his final report. Um, is, is there just, you know, some see in that just another little hint of the way that Scott Morrison operates, be up, up front on one thing and and then when it comes down to it just uh you know that he's a a slippery operator and um and that he'll do in the moment what is pragmatically uh, Mm. suits him yeah look i I know we're almost out of time but just on that very very quickly i I, look i I certainly think he is like that as as a political leader um but you know i mean i I rarely do this with scott morrison I'll, i'll be glass half full and glass half empty about it i mean I have an issue with it in terms of accountability, and I and I think it's I think he creates the misnomer that he's cooperating when it, when the evidence is that he isn't like what we saw uh, in the Ruby Princess inquiry. Um, but that's you know a, a canny politician, a clever politician, uh, gets rewarded electorally if they're able to uh, weave their way through, and ultimately they only get rewarded in the long run electorally if they also do well 
at a macro level, even if at a micro level, we see faults along the way with their level of accountability or with mistakes made. Uh, Howard's success was at the macro, uh, even though at the micro there were a lot of things we could pick apart. I see signs that Scott Morrison is quite similar on that front. He may end up having the macro political success uh, because of people believing that overall, in overall terms, he's done all right. Um, but those of us that follow politics closely might be eternally frustrated, like people who followed politics closely were by Howard, uh, because he manages to be that canny politician that uh, wriggles out of uh, difficult situations. Yeah, just a macro tacti tactician and, uh, and the voters see through all that sort of nonsense and look at the macro stuff and if they're happy, they keep voting him back. PVO, we're yep. out of time. Uh, you better get down the road. That might have been your car, I think. So um, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll see you. Take care. Talk soon. All the best. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.